last week in Acts chapter 16, we saw Paul go through some frustration. Paul was involved in going on this second missionary journey, and he believed that God had sent him on this second missionary journey to do more than preach this time. He was going to go back and encourage those who had received the gospel the first time he went. So he and Barnabas decided, hey, we need to go back and check out all these churches where we preach the gospel in the first place. These little sprouts that had grown up, we want to tend to them. And they had a burden for those people. They didn't want to just leave them hanging. They wanted to go back and check on their progress. But before that happened, there was a little bit of a skirmish between the two of them. Barnabas and Saul had a little argument, or Paul, I keep calling him Saul, but they had an argument, and it was about whether or not to take John Mark with them on the second missionary journey. Well, they got in no small debate, as Luke often says, which means they debated pretty harshly, but when they ended up parting ways, they basically ended up taking individuals with them to go in two different directions to encourage the churches, but really to cover double the ground. And so God uses even our arguments and our divisions to spread the gospel despite us, I think, a lot of the time. And I kind of talked about a couple of weeks ago, I really think that that's in many ways how God sometimes uses denominations and different styles of churches. And though he wants to have unity amongst believers, I think sometimes those divisions, despite us, he uses them for his glory. Cracked vessels, the church, you know. And so we see this week... um, Paul, last week rather, his crew ended up in Macedonia. And if you look at the map up there, basically they had gone to Lystra and Derb and Iconium and then Antioch and then they traveled over there in Asia Minor, see where Thyatira is and Ephesus. And Paul's heart was to canvas the area to cover it with the gospel, to set the captives free, to preach the good news to people that had never heard it, never been exposed to it. But as that took place, The Lord basically kept telling them, no, no, you can't go there. And of course, you could imagine being Paul going, what do you mean I can't go there? This is what you sent me forth to do. So God kept closing doors on him. We don't know exactly what happened. Some people think he was getting sick. And so he was unable physically to keep going. So he would stay in a place and then he would move on. But the door kept getting shut until he ended up in a place called Troas up there by Assos or something like that on the edge there of the Aegean Sea. And when he got there and they were resting at night, he, the Lord gave him a vision in the middle of the night. Said, And it was this man calling from Macedonia saying, come and help us. So Paul, being frustrated, being stopped at every turn, goes, finally a green light. And they take no time at all. They get on a ship. They cross over. This is when many believe that Luke started to join him, the writer of the book of Acts, because he no longer says they or Paul, he says we. And so he joins them, they cross over to Macedonia, and they end up in a colony by the name of Philippi. And as they get there, Paul goes into the city, and really, it doesn't seem like anybody even notices he's there. I can imagine being Paul, where He's crossing over, he's going to these great lengths to travel this area, and then he gets there. Where is this man from Macedonia? So they hang out, they try to get a scope of the town, they end up on the Sabbath, they go down as was customary in places that didn't have a temple or a synagogue. They would go down to the river and they would pray. And when they got down there, they found a a group of women who were praying. 
And he started talking with some of the ladies that were there. And as they were having discussion, one woman in particular overheard their conversation, walked up to them and said, hey, what's going on? And when she heard what Paul had told them, basically, I imagine he was telling them, here, this is how we ended up here. Where's this man from Macedonia? That's what the question I would be asking. And so as they're there, she receives the gospel. She understands why Paul has been traveling. And she takes them and basically she gets baptized and her whole household is saved because of the words that Paul spoke to them. So as they, that's happened. So that's a big breakthrough after lots of closed doors. And then Paul gets into trouble one day. They're heading to the, on the Sabbath down to the river to pray again. And he meets up with a woman who's been following around town for days, proclaiming this, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they come to proclaim the, the salvation of God Most High. So you could imagine, okay, so if that's the case and you believe that, why aren't you with us? Well, we find out later that this woman was a servant. She was a slave owned by men who was being used as a fortune teller. And the message that she proclaimed did not come up with a heart that was submitted to God. It came from a demonic possession that she had. And so Paul, being annoyed by this spirit, doesn't cast her out, but cast the spirit out, looks at her and says, you know, be gone from her. And the spirit leaves. So as a result of that, you can imagine these businessmen are all of a sudden losing their ability to make money with this woman who they probably had paid money for. She's been set free, but they're aggravated because their cash cow is gone. And so they take Paul to the leaders and they bring the charges against them. They scourge Paul and then they put him in jail. We don't know exactly how that all worked out, but it seems that Paul and Silas are in jail. Doesn't mention the other guys. Perhaps they were doing something else. We don't know. But what we do know is that when Paul is in jail, he gives glory to God. He's in the middle of this kind of broken situation where he's all tied up and the Lord gives him peace and joy in the midst of it because they've been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of setting someone free, for the sake of the gospel. And so they're identifying with their Lord going, I'm starting to understand a little bit more what you went through for my salvation. And they start praising God and worshiping in the middle of a dungeon, in the middle of a jail. This isn't a jail like you and I would experience if we were to break the law. This is a, a, a jail a Roman jail that basically had no amenities. They're, they're chained up and the doors are locked. And so they're worshiping. And as they're worshiping, that basically the foundation of the place shakes and the shackles come off of them and the doors are open. And at the time that this all happens, the jailer wakes up and he's getting ready to kill himself because he knows if these men get free, then he's going to be killed and punished for what they deserve. And so he says, I'm not, I'm not willing to put up with this kind of punishment. Why don't I just end it all? It'll be just easier. And Paul says, no, no, wait. Do not end yourself. Do not kill yourself because we're still all in here. We haven't left. We understand what it means if we leave and we want to do you an action of mercy. We want to be merciful. And so Paul stays there. And as Paul and Silas are in there, they basically, because of their action during this being set free and staying in for the sake of this man, they get to lead him to Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, again, his belief, him taking them home, washing the wounds that they probably had inflicted on Paul and Silas, 
Their family is saved because of it. So Paul has had a major breakthrough in ministry and he's excited and he's continuing on. So as Paul and Silas, this week we find them, it's the day after all of this has taken place. And Paul and Silas says, when, when it was day, in verse 35 in chapter 16, when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, Hey, look, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us openly. They've beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now, do they put us away secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came, they pleaded with them, they brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison, they entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So before Paul departs, it seems that he has one last beef with these Roman magistrates. He goes, wait a minute, you've beaten us, you didn't give us a fair trial, we're Roman citizens. As Roman citizens, one of their rights was that they were able to get a fair trial, innocent until proven guilty, before they were ever punished. Now, if you were from a different city or a different place, not from the Roman territory, sorry. You get beaten right away, no questions asked. You get put in prison, perhaps even put to death. But as Roman citizens, they had specific rights. It's the same in the kingdom of God. We have specific rights because we are children of the king. But Paul said, I'm not going to use those rights. I'm going to stay here in the jail. I'm going to give up my rights so that this man perhaps might not only hear the gospel, but see it demonstrated. Because Paul didn't call on his rights right away. He called on them after the work that God had put him in there for was finished. He saw an individual. He was willing to suffer so that one person might come to know the Lord. He reflected the heart of his God. And this is important. Many times we like to call on our rights and we have many and we have that freedom. But is our freedom taking advantage of our freedom leaving someone else captive? We need to be aware of that. We need to be careful of that. We need to pray in the spirit, Lord, am I supposed to call on my rights here or am I gonna lay them down like Jesus did for me? So Paul and Silas truly reflect the heart of God here. And what we see is before they depart, they also wanna let them know hey, we could have you punished, so back off. And so these magistrates, they kind of humble themselves. They come in and they say, hey, uh, we understand. Will you please still leave? (laughs) Because we don't want any more trouble. And so Paul, very righteously, could have stayed there and said, absolutely not. Let's go through with this thing. But Paul felt like the Lord was calling him, let's move on. Let's go somewhere else. We've already planted the gospel here. Lydia's household, which was a, a... God-fearing group. And remember, we talked about the fact that Paul's heart was for Asia Minor. Well, Lydia was from Thyatira. So he never had to set foot in any of those cities. Yet when he went where God called him, Psalm 37, 4 says, if you delight in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. His desire was to reach that region. But the Lord said, no, I'm going to reach, I'm going to give you the desire of your heart. That's my desire too, to reach that area. But I've got a better plan I'm going to send somebody that you're going to reach from Philippi. I'm going to send her back. She's going to be accepted more easily. 
And so I love God's plan and how sometimes he has to tell us something that makes absolutely no sense. So, chapter 17, verse 1. It says there, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, he went into them. For three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He didn't go in there and get on his soapbox and say, Hey, this is my idea about how how Jesus uh, saved my soul. He said, This is what Scripture says. And then it says there, In verse 3, explaining and demonstrating. He was explaining from Scripture, and he was also, yet again, demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them, it says, were persuaded. But it also says, a great multitude of the devout Greeks. Remember, he's reasoning with them there in the synagogue. That's where all the Jews were meeting. There were some God-fearers. But it says there, Some of them were persuaded, but a great multitude of the devout Greeks, meaning the God-fearers that we've seen in previous chapters, and not a few of the leading women, they joined Paul and Silas. They were in line with it. They understood. They received it. So I love this because this is the first response we'll look at today. There are those that will reason with, and they'll receive it, and they'll start joining us. They'll be a part of what God wants to do, whether it's in this place Or whether it's at the place you work, they'll join you. They'll want to kind of join arms in the same, with the same end goal in mind. And so that's what happens. But notice how Paul approaches the Jews. He approaches them based on the written word. Because as a nation, they had been given the written word from God, a specific revelation to them. And it was through the Old Testament. And so that's how he approaches them. But notice that he has the same message, but he also preaches to the Gentiles. And we've seen this in previous chapters. He expresses to them the revealing of God's character through creation. And we see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. There in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul writes there to the Romans, For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. He said when they didn't worship God, they started worshiping other things because in creation they noticed that this couldn't have all just came into existence because of nothing. So they started to attribute the works of God to the works of some created being. That's why they would create these in the pagan nations that did not have the one true and living God. They were given over to idols. They were shaped like animals and birds and other creeping things. And they said, this is our gods. And remember the Israelites when they left the wilderness and they end up in Mount Sinai. And basically while Moses is up on the mountain getting the specific revelation of God from God himself, they told him, go up there for us. And during that 40 days that he was up there, the priest, Aaron, 
decides, you know what? I remember what we did back in, in uh, Egypt and everybody's asking, you know, why did, you know, what brought us out of Egypt? So let's just go ahead and make an image since we don't know yet. And he was basically falling back on the ideas that he had picked up while in Egypt. And so he made these golden calves. So when Moses comes down, he goes, you know, why are you worshiping this thing? What's going on? And he said, I don't know. We just took everybody's earrings, melted them down, just came out as a calf. Now, we, don't know, we know that that's not what happened, but that was his excuse. And so when we don't give thanks to God, we will give thanks to something else. We'll attribute his works to other things. And so my point is, is that God uses Paul to approach the Gentiles differently than the Jews, but the main message of Jesus Christ is the same. So back in Acts chapter 17, we see this. He explained from the scriptures. And you could see where this uh, message that he's sharing, well, it would be something that they would be thirsty for because they've gone through the worship system, but now in the synagogues, they're not even able to make sacrifice anymore. They just get together and talk about the word. But God's desire was not that we would just be filled with his word and just be vessels just sitting there full of stuff, but that would be vessels that could be poured through. And so as he teaches us, he wants to teach through us. He wants to take the word, the, the revelation of his son, and he wants to reveal it to others. And so these, this group of people gathers together with Paul and Silas in the same uh, end goal. However, not everyone there was persuaded. And the ones who were not persuaded, they were envious. Anybody that has an idea about God and say, no, this is who God is, and is not willing to receive the truth about Jesus, is missing the full revelation of the gospel. And so their reaction is not only envious, but it leads to anger and violence. And we see this uh, starting in verse 5. It says, But the Jews, these are the people that had the specific word of revelation from the Lord, the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, they took some of the evil men from the marketplace, they gathered a mob, they set all the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down, they've come here too. Jason has harbored them and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there's another king and his name's Jesus. So stop there because what I want to point out is that those that helped, those that believed and received and let Paul and his crew stay with them, they got a target on their heads. They're abetting the enemy in the eyes of the world. And so they attack Jason's house and they're looking for Paul. They're looking for Silas. They're looking for Luke. Remember Timothy's with them. They're looking for those guys. But when they can't find those guys, who do they attack? The guys that were helping them. This is the same we do in law enforcement, right? You get somebody that's broken the law, you look for the people that have helped them, and many times you'll use them to, to weed out the one who is the source of the issue. So they're doing the same thing. They're using worldly wisdom to get rid of this unhealthy teaching in their mind. And their indictment against uh, Jason and even the brethren is the same thing that their indictment is with Paul. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. You mean this group of small people showing up in your town has turned it completely upside down? Would it be said that we've done the same? 
Would it be said that we were so on fire for the Lord, we were so consumed with his desire for our lives that people would be a little bit upset that we're stirring up the apple cart, we're knocking it over, we're upsetting it. And in a way that brings glory to God because notice here, they're being punished for righteousness sake. They're taking the gospel to its full end and they're living it out. And as they're doing so, it's ruffling the feathers of the group that is considered the leaders. So these two have turned the world upside down. They've come here too. But remember when this indictment, when they're saying you've ruffled the feathers, you've turned our world upside down. Remember, they're doing the work of the Lord because what happened at the fall is that the world was right side up. God created it all and he said it was good. And then what happened was Adam and Eve were in the garden. They got tempted. And they said, has God really said you can't eat of any of the trees? Well, he didn't say that. He just said of the one tree. They were tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Satan's plan all the way through. It hasn't changed, but it looks different. And so he put that fruit before them and said, God knows that if you eat of this, well, that you'll be like him. You'll be godlike. Well, that sounds good. I'd love to be godlike, right? With the wrong motives, unfortunately. And so they usurped the command of God because of the temptation and because they had an evil desire in their heart. They took of that fruit and from that point on, fellowship with God was hindered and broken. It was separated. Because what happened? They were walking with God in the cool of the day. Fellowship with God was the norm, not the exception. But what happened after they forsook what God commanded them, the one command. He made it as simple as he could. They rejected it. And from that point on, they did recognize good from evil. And they recognized they were naked. And so they hid from God. They were embarrassed. And so God came and he, he was very gracious. He says, where have you guys gone? Well, he knew where they were, but he wanted them to confess it. And they basically said, we come out, but we're naked. Who told you you were naked? So he's questioning all these things. So basically from that point on, fellowship with God was broken. It was all flipped upside down and then they were cast out of paradise. So from that point on, there's been this struggle. There's been these curses because of the rejection of God's command. So now that these men are carrying the message of reconciliation, we can all be reconciled to Christ, brought back near, not by our own, our own righteousness, but by the righteousness that can be found in Jesus Christ. And so they're telling them this. They're recognizing the difference in the lives of those that proclaim and live this out. And they're saying, these guys are turning our world upside down. And on top of that, Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there's another king. Well, we don't really think about that because we're not in a, in a place where we have a king. But in their society, they had King Caesar. And Caesar, what he said, went. And to say that there's another king means that you're committing treason because you're calling to question the one authoritative ruler that we all answer to. And Caesar was not just a king, but he actually expected worship. So to say that there's another king in their minds, twisted, is blasphemy. You're trotting on our king, but we know that Jesus is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And so uh, they can question them all they want, but these men 
They're going to be shaken a little bit, but they're not going to deny their faith because when the enemy comes in and tries to distract us or confuse us or scare us, what do we do? We don't let go of our anchor of hope. What do we do? We cling tighter because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he cannot be moved. He cannot be shaken. So because of that, these men basically hold their ground. And when the things that were told about them troubled the crowd, verse 8, and the rulers of the city, when they heard these things, they were all troubled. But verse 9 says what? It says, when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Their convictions that these men were really messing up their society were strong, but they said, you know what? We'll let you go if you give us some money. <laughs> they could be bought. The servants of God, true servants of God cannot be bought. But see here the ways of the world. Uh, we really hold strong to our decrees here, but uh, give us a little money and we'll let you free. So what do they do? They give them a little money. Hey, what is it to them? It's not, it's not their money, it's God's money. So they want to be able to minister. So verse 10. Uh, now I wanted to share a verse from third, uh, John chapter 3. Got a little ahead of myself. John chapter 3, verse 19 says this. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So the light of the world is being revealing in this area and there's different responses and one of the responses reception the other response rage and this group that's raging against the truth rages against those who carry the truth they try to get rid of the messengers they try to shake them up a little bit so there we go from there to verse 10 it says then the brethren immediately sent paul and silas away by night to berea and when they arrived there, they went into the synagogue and the Jews, excuse me, of the Jews. There were more, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So Berea had taken Paul's message quite different than the Thessalonians. We see the contrast here. There's one group that kind of reacts to the message and there's one group that responds you know what I'm talking about when you think of a reaction. You go to the doctor, they hit your knee in that certain spot with that rubber hammer that drives me nuts, and they hit it and they go, and that's a reaction. It's called a knee-jerk reaction. But a response is different. A response is what happens when someone, perhaps you're in high school and someone hits you in the face, and you go, why did you do that? Rather than just respond, reacting and going, kabam, and hitting them because they hit you. It takes reason. It takes time to kind of process through something that you've experienced or heard. And so Paul says, excuse me, Luke writes, that these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness. They were sponges. They were hungry. They received what Paul had to teach. They thought it through. And then it says there that they received it, after they received it, they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. If every Christian would do this faithfully, 
we would have a much more healthy church. We would have people, and I'm not talking about just here, although this is the same for here. I'm talking about the church worldwide, the churches that are in our town. There are many churches out there that call on the name of Christ, but they reject the final authority of Scripture. And so if every church had believers who would do this faithfully, perhaps there would be far fewer churches out there teaching things that are not in the Bible. If every church member would search the Scripture to see if what was taught last Sunday, and I'm including here, check out the Scripture, see if these things are so. I'm fallible, God is not. His word is able to correct us when we're in error. And we need that. It's what keeps us healthy. It's what helps us grow. And so then they, um, not only would there be less error, but there would be less Christians that would be led astray. Here's the problem. Where do we read things about Christianity? Well, we've got our Bible. We've got the internets. We've got TV. We've got people making YouTube videos. Anybody can publish their views. How do I know what's right and what's wrong? How do I discern between what is the right hand and the left? We need to be able to do that. We're God's people. We should be those that know where the dividing line is. And it all comes from the sword of the Lord. The sword of the Lord is what God divides even between the division of soul and flesh in our own lives. And so God desires his word to be held up even higher than his name. That's written in the Psalms somewhere. I'll look it up. So I'm not just throwing that out there. I said that one time when I was in a prayer meeting and one of the ladies, very godly woman, she said, where is that in scripture? Because I've never read that before. It kind of shook her up a little bit. She's like, God's name, it can't be above God's name. But anyway, it's in there. I'll come up with it for next week. Search the scriptures, see if these things are so. <laughs> so, but he says, these were more fair-minded. They searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Verse 12, therefore, many of them believed. And also, not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So verse 12, because of the way that they received the word, because of the way they not only received it, but checked it out for themselves, they became a healthy church. And many believed. It says that many of the Jews believed. It's not just some of them, but many of them. And then it says that a great number of the Gentiles believed as well. When the Son of Man is high and lifted up, in your life, in your home, in what you say and do, he will draw men to himself. And when the word of God is the source of the ministry, God gives the increase. And the fruit that grows from that kind of ministry, it will remain until the day that Christ returns. It will be a, a fruit that's produced that will bear more fruit. In short, men and women came to faith in Jesus because of the way they received the word, because Paul pointed them to Jesus in the scriptures and they didn't take him out of his word. They didn't just go, well, he's Paul the apostle. Let's take it all in. They said, eh, let's check it out for ourselves. Paul's just a guy like you and I. And so they weren't content with just saying, I believe it because my pastor said so. They wanted to see for themselves. In the same way, they weren't content with it just because their mom and dad said so or because their grandparents said so. They questioned everything. In many ways, I like this about the culture that I grew up in. We questioned everything. Now, many of us ended up in all kinds of different results. But when we show up in churches like I did, it caused me to question everything I was being told because I'd heard a lot of stuff. 
So as we've seen many times in the book of Acts, every time God begins a new work, this is a good thing. But then that's when the counteroffensive comes. That's when the enemies of the Lord, they stop that work from, they try to stop that work from continuing by causing confusion, division, chaos, and distraction. They basically throw a big cloud of dust in the air to distract us from what matters, to take our focus off Jesus. Kind of like the storm, as Paul, or excuse me, as Peter stepped out onto the water, he said, Lord, if that's you, I want to come out there. And so he took a step, he was in. You know, many people are hard on Peter because he took that step, but I don't know many other people that actually stood on water. Peter did. So I'm not going to give him any grief. But the one thing that happened is because the waves and the wind, and he got scared, he looked away. He was distracted from the one he was supposed to focus on. But the enemies of God are always trying to stop the message of Jesus from continuing on. However, once the message has been planted in good soil, it will remain. It takes root, and its roots are deep. And when the enemy comes in like a flood and the winds of persecution or trials begin to blow, those who trust in the Lord, they don't let them go. So it says there, excuse my voice, I'm sorry. Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and they stirred up the crowds. Bitterness begets bitterness and it doesn't go away. And so these people that are still bitter, they're trying to get vengeance on this man, Paul. They travel as far as to the next town there in Berea, which doesn't look like a short trip. You know, according to the scale, it's at least 50 miles. So they travel 35 to 50 miles to get to Berea just so they can continue to try to stop him. But it says there, somewhere, immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Paul and, excuse me, Silas and Timothy remained there so that those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. So they sent him away, being the source for all the commotion. They didn't want to stop the gospel from being preached. They didn't want to have a bad name there. So they said, Paul did his job. He's proclaimed the gospel. There are many believe here. So we're going to send him on. But Silas and Timothy, you stay behind. Encourage the brethren. And then when I get to Athens, you can come with me. And so he gets to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him. With all speed, they departed. So that he called for them to come after him. But they didn't want to leave in the middle of the commotion like Paul. They wanted to stay there until things settled. And I like this. Paul had the heart of an evangelist. But as his life progresses, we'll see that it seems his life became more and more. He had a heart for those that had received the gospel. He gets more of a pastoral heart. That's why Paul and Barnabas were so good together. Because Paul, he was hard driving. and He wanted to cover the ground. And he wanted to make sure as many people as possible could hear. And Barnabas... He had a heart for people. He wanted to stay and to water that seed that it had been planted so that when it got up past its infantile stages, it could mature and grow and produce fruit. And so God uses different people for different uh, things. My conclusion today, and we'll wrap it up. There are many ways that people respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised. If Paul dealt with it, if Jesus dealt with it, We're going to deal with it. Who are we to be much better? Some are persuaded through the scriptures and through reason. That was my take. 
I had gone to church for a little while. I'd been there. I'd received just enough to be intrigued. I knew that I had God as my creator. I knew that he, I wanted him to be my savior, but he wasn't quite my Lord. And so when someone came along and reasoned from the scriptures why I needed to step out and actually trust him fully to be my Lord and obey him and follow him, it just clicked for me. I was ready. There are some, though, that are unwilling to accept anything that's seemingly different or new than they've always known. There are those that Jesus is not who they think he is. And so when someone comes along and says, well, Jesus isn't what you think he is, they're like, absolutely not, and they reject it. And those who reject it have very various responses as well. Some turn and just leave, and you never hear from them again. And some react with anger and violence. It's what happens. We have to be ready for that because even in those moments we need to be able to demonstrate love to them because that's what happened to Paul as he was on the way, on the road to Damascus. The Lord in his mercy stopped him and he said, why are you persecuting me? God takes it personally. He's not blind. He sees when we go through things and he's acting on our behalf. He will bring out vengeance, but perhaps he'll bring out salvation. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33.11 says, but that the wicked should turn and live. And sometimes that means we've got to take a couple stripes from them before they'll be willing to hear what we have to say. And then there are some who will hear the truth. They'll search it out for themselves, and then they may not respond right away. It might take some time for it to seep into them. And as they start to find out that what you're telling them is true from the Scriptures, they will light it up for the Lord. It'll be something that won't be of you. It won't even have your fingerprints on it. It'll have the Lord all over it. And so it will, be, it will remain. So all these responses you can expect. Perhaps if one of these responses resonates with how you came to the Lord. Realize that the people you're witnessing to will be no different. But at least most of these reactions are actually reactions. We live in a day and age where we're so... Uh, enamored with so much information and data all the time. Sometimes you tell somebody about Jesus and it's just like you just told them that you'd be right back because you're going to use the restroom. They're just like, uh-huh. All right. I've heard of Jesus. Well, good. What have you done with it? You know, and, and you just wonder, you know, are they listening at all or are they just kind of zombified where they're callous to anything that has to do with anything but this physical life? Well, in many ways they are. They have to be shaken. So, there's, we're so consumed in our culture with creature comforts, with hobbies, with activities, and of course, our constant interaction with our phones, our computers. There's always emails coming in and text messages. And sometimes, because of that, we don't really have much time to respond to the Word of God. See, we could obviously take this uh, application and say, well, we're looking at other people's response to the gospel. But the reality is the gospel never stops being infused into our lives. It's not just about salvation, it's also about sanctification. And sanctification happens when we approach a holy God through His Word and we respond. Whether we realize it or not, we have a response every time we read God's Word. Every time we're praying, Lord, He gives us information, He's speaking into our lives, and we have a response. Sometimes my response is, okay, I gotta get to work. And because I'm so distracted, I'm not able to receive. Sometimes my response is, oh, wow, Lord, I can't believe that I've missed this for so many years. So let me ask you, how do you react when God's word shines his light on you? Are you the type who reacts quickly 
Just like those people in Thessalonica, and you accept the teaching from Scripture when it seems reasonable. You kind of take it at face value and you go with it. It's not a bad thing. Are you those who reject God's word when it confronts sin in your life and you try to explain it away? There are many that are walking around kind of uh, lame in their Christian walk because God keeps trying to tell them something and they keep going, yeah, but that verse doesn't really mean that. Kind of explaining away what God's trying to do. Do you become violent or angry towards those who would try to point you in the right direction? That's important that we don't do that, especially in the church. It causes disunity and dissension. Or do you receive Bible teaching with readiness and then go and search the scriptures to see if they're really so? Do you sit down in your Bible in the morning? I'm not talking about just here. I'm talking about in your quiet time. Do you just say, Lord, what do you got for me today? Are you a sponge? And then when God pricks your heart, do you explain it away or do you dig a little deeper and say, what specifically are you talking about, Lord? He desires that for us. It's what makes us healthy. Do you even notice when God's trying to speak to you? I guess that's my biggest question. Do you even notice? God is speaking. He's desiring to get through to each one of us. And when was the last time he was able to get any sort of reaction out of you? Even a reaction of, oh, is a reaction. At least then you're still hearing from the Lord. Where there's strife, there's life. You know, Jacob got a word from the Lord and what did he do all night? He wrestled with God. And at the end of it, he ended up being very humble. God touched the, the socket of his hip and he was never the same. May we be those that when we go into the quiet place and we're praying and God infuses something into our life that we walk away different than when we sat down. Paul would later write to Timothy this exhortation and we'll close on this. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. He's telling this to a young pastor who is still working out his own personal walk as he's trying to teach others. And this is something I can relate with and I hope that you can. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Paul exhorts Timothy very strongly. He says, take heed. I love that word because it means to lean in, to take hold of. He says, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, meaning the doctrines of scripture. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Now, I'm not talking about needing to get saved over and over again. That's not scriptural. When God saves you, he takes hold of your life. You're his. But what he's talking about is that sanctification process. That we are daily being saved by his grace. We are daily receiving words that will keep us from stumbling. And as we daily receive those things, it's not about us. It is about us because we are... His inheritance, He's chosen us. But it's also about those that are around us because notice the end of that verse there. It says, in doing this and keeping to the doctrine and taking heed to it, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So as God changes you from glory to glory and He infuses these thoughts and these teachings into your life, what happens is that those things that you're full of, when you get squeezed, What's going to pour out on your enemies? It's going to be his words. It's going to be the teachings that are saving you. They're going to save someone else. So Father, thank you so much for this word of exhortation and how you use your word in so many different ways. And it's the, it's the lamp into our feet. It's the light into our path. But it's also the light that shines through us into the hearts of those who are still in darkness and blinded to sin. Lord, use it in a mighty way in us 
in our families, in our spouses, our children, Lord, and those that we work with, we're with them seems sometimes more than we're with our own families. God, spread your light into our workplaces and to the individuals that you've placed in our lives. Give us a new love for them. And then, Lord, as you do that, Lord, reach those that we don't even know are listening while we're sharing the things you've shown us with those who we think are listening. Lord, help us to be very intentional about spending time with you so that you will keep us from sin, so you'll refine us and present us as a holy, pure bride, as a church corporately, and as individuals, a pure bride for your son Jesus, who is worthy of a pure and unspotted bride. Father, we love you. We thank you for this word, and we pray that you would infuse it into our lives in a way that bears fruit to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's end with one more song.